This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 705. Because that's what real estate should be. It's like you should always feel like you're broke if you are investing correctly. And that is, that that's a whole nother probably episode of like, I always call it the, the broke millionaire conundrum where you actually are a millionaire on paper, but you're deploying all of your cash to your investments. And so you're always like, dang it, where did all my money go? And it's just tied up in equity. Uh, which is a good thing. What's up, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. Here today with my co-host, Rob Abasolo, who you just heard popping off with excitement about one of our biggest bookings to date, not just in the amount of money, but in the short period of time. And I hope you're just as excited as we are. But today's show is not going to be about a bunch of wins, actually. You are going to hear about a lot of things that are going wrong in our portfolios, uh, things that we didn't anticipate that actually became hurdles for us, mistakes that we're trying to work our way through, changes in the economy, just a bunch of stuff that isn't going right, because a lot of people are dealing with this, and how you handle mistakes is even more important than not making them. Today's show is a fantastic episode where Rob and I are going to go deep into our own portfolios, lives, and businesses and share what we're doing to handle the chaos and destruction that often comes from being a real estate investor. And I think you're going to love it. Rob, what were some of your favorite parts? Oh, man. Oh, this is just filled with goodies because we talk about the multiverse, right? We may not be able to mm-hmm. get you to get into Interstellar, but we can at least get you to talk about the concepts of, of the parallel universes, of the demise of our portfolios. And we even get to go toe-to-toe on metaphors and analogies. You talk about energy storage. I bring it with the battery analogy. And I'm like, wow, the student has become the teacher. And then lastly, we give a lot of just good thought about uh, portfolio architecture and how to structure your portfolio in a way that can help you weather any economic storm that we may or may not face. That's exactly right. And that's what I think is personally important. I'm talking a lot about how you build a financial fortress, not a flimsy shack that you could just throw together really quick, which frankly, a lot of people did the last five or six years with the economy. There was people throwing things together that they never should have been, and they're not doing very well, but there's a way to construct your portfolio in a way that will stand the test of time. And that's what we at Bigger Pockets believe in. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. As home prices and interest rates continue to rise and inventory levels dip, it's getting harder to find quality flips and wholesale deals. When there's not enough on-market inventory to go around, it's time to start looking off-market. Lucky for you, there are millions of homeowners nationwide who own a property they need to get off their hands. I got two words for you, my friend. PropStream it. PropStream is the leading real estate data provider and recognized as a Tech 100 honoree by Housing Wire for the fourth consecutive year. With PropStream, you can search over 155 million properties nationwide using 120 plus search filters like pre-foreclosure, bankruptcy, pre-probate, failed listings, and more to help you find motivated sellers in seconds. PropStream offers both public record data and an MLS sales estimate that's over 99% accurate to help you get the most accurate comps even in non-disclosure states. PropStream also provides lead automation, skip tracing, and a marketing suite with emails, postcards, and custom landing pages to close more deals efficiently. Get started today with their seven-day free trial and get 50 leads for free. Head on over to www.propstream.com BP. That's www.propstream.com BP. Before we get to today's show, a quick tip for the audience. Today's quick tip is... 
Consider how your portfolio can be perfectly balanced as all things should be. Consider yourself Thanos and ask, how could this all fall apart? And how can I create the amount of balance that I would need to prevent that from happening? It could be seasonality with short-term rentals. It could be having a lot of money in the bank and then spending it all on a deal. Rob's still trying to work out the balance. It's harder than it looks, isn't it, over there? You got to see it on YouTube. Poke holes in your own portfolio. Make it a pokefolio. And look at ways this could fall apart and then be proactive about trying to prevent that as opposed to just living in fear, anxiety, and worry about what could happen, not having a plan for what you'll do if it does. With that being said, we are going to pull back the curtain and show you guys what's been going on in our portfolios, how we're handling those challenges, and what we're doing to lock in and keep it tight. All right, David, I know you're not a fan of Interstellar because you still haven't finished it and you're not, you're not really into the whole parallel universe thing. But I wanted to throw a couple of parallel universe scenarios at you and talk about it on today's episode of Bigger Pockets. Is that cool? I can probably get into the parallel universe thing. It's kind of being forced on us all if you like Marvel movies. You just have multiverse. to accept it. And yes, exactly right. So we could bring the multiverse into the podcast. Okay, well, let's do it. So today, what I wanted to talk about was we are relatively successful real estate investors. We're in different journeys, uh, different parts of our journeys, if you will. And we've done really, really, really well for ourselves. And I, I think we have enough systems in place and protections in place to, to really kind of weather any storm that's approaching or that we're currently in. But I wanted to, to flip the script a little bit today and talk about a world where our entire empire falls apart. And talk about the scenarios that would cause the demise of David Green and Rob Abasolo. I think that's healthy. I think constantly planning for a paranoid worst case scenario can only make your portfolio stronger. So this would just be a multiverse scenario where Thanos is king and Iron Man has lost his armor and Captain America can't find his shield and the Hulk has become anorexic. And how are the Earth's Mightiest Heroes going to manage these challenges without their superpowers? Okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm curious. Have you ever given thought to a world where, you, where your entire portfolio crumbles? Yes. I do think about it a lot. I think the challenge is that when things are going really well, you have the thought in your head of like, it won't always be this way or you got to prepare for whatever, but the emotional environment that you're operating out of is very different. And the same is true on the other side. When things are very difficult, you have the thought in your head, like, I know I can make money through real estate. It can work, but your emotional state is just so negative and fear-based. It's very hard to operate. So these exercises are good because it forces you out of the emotional state you're in right now, based on temporary factors like the market, uh, how your last deal went or what you ate for breakfast this morning and into the mental side of it where it's much more stable and uh, like beneficial to be approaching financial aspects from that perspective. But deep down, I know that you're probably always comforted knowing that you have like 10 million credit card points, right? Isn't that your, your apocalyptic scenario? If everything is gone. <laughs> yes, that's my one backup plan. So yeah, like we were joking about how I have a lot of credit card points because having them there just it makes me feel better in case everything gets wiped away, right? If, the, if Thanos snaps his finger and half of my wealth disappears, I've still got these credit card points that I can live off of for six months <laughs> without having to worry about going hungry. Yeah, David hasn't really disclosed how many has that that's my guess i will say that is the one thing i'm more protective <laughs> about my credit card points than i am my real estate portfolio i've got like like twelve thousand dollars worth of credit card points i think i don't know what's 1.2 million credit card points like twelve thousand bucks and i'm like i am never gonna touch this that's so funny that in our my beanie baby collection that i keep in various uh safety deposit boxes throughout the midwest i've seen that thing that's extensive uh yeah well, let, let's do it, man. Let's talk about it. Um, and I'll be, let me just give my point of view before we get into it. I think, it, like you said, it is healthy to talk about the good and the bad and like, hey, what scenario, this and that. We have this mindset when things are going well that, hey, we're crushing it, blah, blah, blah. Honestly, I don't care one way or another. Uh, this is probably a hot take how the real estate portfolio does on a day to day. Like the cash flow is always nice, but I kind of stash it all in the bank account anyways. And I really rely on appreciation anyways. So, you know, I'm, I have really good months. I have like so-so months. Most of the time they're good months, but honestly, at the end of the day, it's a long game. And so I'm just like every day pushing that, that stone, you know, a foot forward, if you will. That's not how it goes, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So from your perspective, 
when you're one of the ways you're playing defense here is that you're not going to spend the money from the cash flow. So you project the cash flow that you want to get, but you don't rely on it. So there's never an emotional connection you're saying to your safety being relied to the cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big advocate of having your real estate work for you and build wealth and everything, but to have a bunch of other streams of income that you can actually live off of. So I have probably like 10 to 15 streams of income. That's really what, what I live off of so that I can always propel the, the real estate portfolio forward. I think that's healthy. And the reason I think it's good to, for us to bring this up is most people don't acknowledge that fact. The majority of the time, if you're getting free information about real estate investing, like if you're paying someone, this could be different if you're paying for coaching or a course or something. But if you're getting the information for free, the person giving it to you has to make money somehow. So they're usually going to be making money by trying to get you to uh, like to, for advertising or to get views, to get attention, to get followers. The quickest way to do that is to tell someone that they can make more money easier than what they're currently doing. This has just been around forever, right? So if there's a girl that you like and she's got a boyfriend, the first thing every guy wants to do is tell her all the reasons that her boyfriend sucks and how he would be better, right? The same thing comes true for if you want someone's money. You got to tell them that the place they're currently getting their money from could be better. And if you come over to this world, girl, I'll show you how to make some passive cash flow. Wouldn't that be better than having to go to work every day? And so you're you're frequently seeing TikTok and Instagram and and social media uh, scripts with little emojis in them that says, do you want to make $6,000 a month? Do you want to know how I make $300,000 a year without working? And inevitably, this is some form of cash flow from real estate. And the, it, it's true that in principle, you can make money passively from real estate. It's also true that it is inherently less reliable than that W-2 income that everybody is trashing. So like the new guy is always going to tell you how he's better than your boyfriend in all these ways. But then if you jump ship and you you hook up with the new guy, you realize, oh, there's a lot of stuff my boyfriend was doing that this guy doesn't do that I maybe took for granted. And for a lot of people, their W-2 job is not the best thing. They need to get out of it. But for others, you forget that when you're having a bad week or you're feeling down or you're distracted or your kid's sick and you're not sleeping, man, that paycheck just keeps on coming. It doesn't matter if you don't perform. You get into the world of real estate or entrepreneurialism and you're not on your A game, that money might actually stop. And so it is worth acknowledging that income coming from a secure source has a value that income coming from an insecure source like cash flow doesn't have. And it's also worth acknowledging that this is never talked about in the real estate space because most people sharing the information don't want to tell you that cash flow is unreliable because then you're not going to follow them. You're not going to subscribe to their channel. You're not going to give them the like. You're not going to give them the currency that they need to justify the free content they're putting out. Oh yeah. You know, it's so funny because I'm always like, well, on YouTube, in my content, I'm or, or just my students, I'm like, all right, let's get you to $10,000 a month. I'm going to teach you how to do that. And they're like, oh my God, let's do it. I'm like, all right. And here's what's going to happen when you make $10,000 a month. You're not going to spend it. And they're like, wait, what? I'm like, gotcha. I made you wealthy and I'm not letting you spend it. Uh, because that's what real estate should be. It's like, you should always feel like you're broke if you are investing correctly. And that is, that that's a whole nother probably episode of like, I always call it the, the broke millionaire conundrum where you actually are a millionaire on paper, but you're deploying all of your cash to your investments. And so you're always like, dang it, where did all my money go? And it's just tied up in equity, uh, which is a good thing. And that's one of the reasons I've started referring to money as a store of energy and work as energy. I'm trying to move our thought off of the US dollar, which has a value that's constantly fluctuating with inflation. It's very hard to know what a dollar's worth into an understanding of energy to where uh, you can make a bunch of money, which was just you converting work into energy and then taking it in the form of money. And then you go trade that money for fancy clothes and fancy shoes and fancy cars and fancy vacations. And you're just wearing your energy on the outside. That's all that it is. You're not wealthier than other people. You're just putting energy into things like cars and clothes versus with real estate. We are constantly putting our energy back into the asset, back into the portfolio. We're putting it into the future where it's going to grow and replicate and create more energy. And we can pull energy out of the portfolio through cash flow, through cash out refinances. There's these vehicles that we use to access that energy. But you're right. The better way to grow your wealth is to keep as little of the energy as possible for yourself and keep as much of it inside the vehicles where it's going to grow more, which often leads to people wearing t-shirts just like you. 
<laughs> That's right. My one, uh, my single shirt. I only own one. Um, <laughs> actually, I think to to use your uh, analogy here, I actually think it's better to think of your. Um, oh, this is really good. Okay, I just I got to work through it with you on the air here. But your money and your wealth is sort of like a battery, like battery storage. All right, and yes. so you can store all your batteries for a storm, right? And when that storm comes, you can use it to weather the storm. However, if you use your batteries for like dumb things, right? I don't know, like our, our RC remotes or RC cars or whatever. As soon as that energy is gone, it's gone. You're not getting it back. It's a depleting source. And then on the flip side of this, batteries don't last forever. If you just keep your batteries in the, the closet for 20 years, they lose power over time, which is inflation. So you have to be able to consistently move your energy to something that is going to produce more energy. Woo! I did it. I love it. Yes. And there's so many people that think, oh, my laptop is charged. I'm at 100%. I don't need to plug it in. Terrible attitude. You shouldn't be like, I'm rich. I'm at 100% battery. Plug it in. Keep the energy in the bat- in the power source and and have new energy coming in from the electricity to restore it, which would be new ways of making income through real estate, new ways of making income through entrepreneurialism. Yes, you have a bunch of wealth stored inside of your real estate. Don't just pull it out because you never know when you're going to need it. You don't know what happens if the power goes out. Like you said, you can't recharge that battery and you're only at 4%. You're only at 12% because you were too lazy to plug it in. So in today's show, we're literally talking about how we prepare for that storm that's going to stop you from being able to replace that energy, how you prepare for the storm that's going to cut your battery life in half, how when everything is great and you think it's always going to be great, we plan for when it's not going to be great because those storms tend to not be the case all the time. We don't have 20-year storms. They tend to be wicked, nasty hurricanes that come through in a couple years of devastation and then the economy's better. So overall, this is why we're always doing well collecting energy and collecting electricity in our portfolio when we're investing it. But it you'd be a fool to not plan for the fact that you're going to have downturns and the goal is just survival. How are we going to survive those short periods of time where the storms hit and we got to batten down the hatches, get in the basement, wait for it to pass. And then once it's done, come out of there and go start planting our flag and scooping up all the real estate we can. (laughs) Well, we just really, really masterfully put together uh, a good analogy here over the last 13 minutes. I hope it actually makes it into the final episode. If you only heard one minute of this, just know there was a lot of good stuff that we just talked about. But yeah, let's talk about it, man. Let's actually get into the the structural weaknesses of our portfolios and what some of those scenarios are that could cause them to, to crumble. Uh, obviously, they're not likely, but we should consider what could happen to take us down. Yeah. So where do you want to start? Uh, well, I think, I mean, the, the general question here is like, how could the whole empire fall apart, right? And I think that there's a few ways that we could do that. So we could start with the question like, what are areas of possible weaknesses in your current strategy? Do you have anything uh, to speak on on that kind of first bullet point? And I was just thinking before we recorded, I was having a conversation with somebody and we were talking about where business is going good and where business is going bad. And in general, for me, the actual decisions I'm making are close to 100% solid. I rarely make a bad decision when it comes to what to buy or how to manage it or how to manage the energy flow. Uh, And so I will talk about that in the show, like how I look at it so that I rarely make bad decisions. But I still have significant stress and problems and things that go wrong. So I was trying to figure out like, how is that happening if I'm making good decisions in all my investments? And what I realized is it comes down to two things, and they're things that I cannot control. They are other people, and they are things like regulations, okay? So I could look at a deal, analyze it from every single situation, walk into it with a really good plan, buy the property, and the neighbor complains about the construction, and the city gets involved, and they slow you down, and it turns into a six-month project instead of a 30-day project, and you lose ten grand a month before you even get the property out, and you're $60,000 in the hole. So then you don't realize you need a second kind of permit. Well, that's going to take another three months before you can get it, right? And then you go down this this rabbit trail of just your construction or your jump off part took nine months and you didn't have $90,000 set aside. And the next thing you know, you went from being uh, extra liquid to barely liquid at all. And then if you have another problem go wrong somewhere else in your portfolio, boom, you're at that point where you're not going to weather the storm. So regulation is one thing that is very difficult for investors to navigate right now. Uh, and that is especially true with short-term rentals. 
You don't know about the neighbors complaining to city council and they come in and say, this is no longer allowed. Or uh, an associate of mine recently had to sell three properties of his in Virginia because out of nowhere, the HOA just decided we're not going to allow short-term rentals anymore. So what's he going to do? He had to put the houses on the market and sell them. He wasn't able to sell for a profit. Most of the money that they had been crushing it making over like the nine months before that from all the work they put in went to cover the closing costs and the realtor fees. And then after he and his partner split up the money, there was like barely any profit that was made for nine months of hard work and success. Nothing that they could control. So things like regulation can absolutely screw me up. And the other one is people. I was thinking about all the problems that I'm having. They're always problems from deals I did with other people. A partner in a deal did got got greedy or got lazy or or didn't have the same value system as me and they made decisions that I wasn't looking at that were very poor. So even though the plan and the property was perfect, the person was not perfect. Or a business partner that you go into business with and you find out that the friendship you have with someone is not the same relationship you have once money gets involved. So I've had situations where we started an enterprise and they did really well, really quick, and they completely changed. They don't have the same values. They're acting much differently. Um, Their ego is more important to them than the success of the business, right? They've never experienced that much affluence that quickly, and it, it hit them in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. So those are typically the things that will cause stress in my life, and so... Like trying to learn to limit how dependent I am on other people in these enterprises is the biggest threat to my portfolio. And most of the, the issues that I'm having right now come from that. Is that why you shut down your your pink Volkswagen Beetle rental service? I've always wondered why that why that went under. We had a ton of demand and it was really good for my image. But yeah, the, uh, the partner that I had decided they didn't want it to be pink anymore. They wanted to move <laughs> no. into purple and I just couldn't live with that. Creative differences. Uh, no, man, that's a, that makes a lot of sense. I think <clears throat> there are definitely, I mean, regulations even go past, I, I think, like laws and short-term rental laws and everything like that. I mean, we know that I am a short-term rental host. I don't, obviously, we talk about it all the time. But there are other regulations that can really throw you for a loop. And I'll give you one example of where someone's empire might have crumbled. Mine did not, thankfully. Uh, I guess for the purpose of this podcast, we'll say it was my empire. But I had a relatively successful Airbnb operation and like a little glamp side operation that was cash flowing a lot of money. Things were going good. I was flying high, Icarus, if you will, right? Flying close to the sun. Mm-hmm. And then we got this little thing called a COVID-19 pandemic across the world. And guess what? Airbnb canceled all of the reservations um, that we had for like three months straight. And then the city shut down and they wouldn't let you do Airbnb. And so we actually had to refund Forty to $50,000 worth of reservations overnight. Now, I think for most people that are overzealous and very levered and like, um, you know, don't have a lot of reserves or anything like that, that would have eaten up most businesses. But my standpoint has always been to just keep all of our money in the bank account. Don't spend it. As I said, I try not to spend real estate money. So it was really no big deal. Uh, it was not a big deal for us to refund it. Obviously, I didn't like refunding like 50 grand, but it was like, okay, we have the money. We're just not going to make it. It's not a big deal. And then guess what? We ended up, because we were able to weather that, we were actually the most profitable we had ever been for the rest of the year. Whereas there were a lot of people in like rental arbitrage, like master lease contracts where they had 100 units. A lot of them went under during that time specifically because they couldn't get tenants to rent their their Airbnbs. Mm -hmm. So even like more of a global regulation could really cause your your empire to crumble. Did you have any issues during that time with any of the rest of your portfolio? Were you okay? Uh, Did you have anything at all during your time, like when COVID-19 first hit that caused any like structural cracks in your system or were you okay because you were mostly in long-term rentals? Well, the rental properties were more or less okay. I had a handful of tenants that didn't pay, and I had one where the tenant didn't pay for over a year. The problem with that was that uh, I wasn't watching the portfolio super close because of all the other businesses I have. So I didn't even know that a year went by or more than a year without this person paying. The property manager didn't push it to the front of my attention. That was the, the biggest problem with the rentals. The bigger problem was with the real estate team. Real estate agents were considered to be not essential. So we literally could not show homes anymore. Like not just holding open houses. You can't even get into a house to even go show it. Nobody was going to be buying homes. So this entire income stream was basically just shut down. You weren't going to be able to sell anybody's home. 
and you weren't going to be able to help buyers with buying it. And it's very easy from an emotional standpoint to see the money keeps rolling in. I can keep buying. I can keep spending. I can keep doing whatever I'm doing. And then COVID hits, which was a black swan event no one would have ever thought. Boom. They actually had like a, a couple week period where loans wouldn't fund. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans, the government's like, we're just not funding anything. The only way you could buy houses with cash and the only way you could buy houses not seeing it. So like no one's going to be buying houses at that time. And so like I, I your, your, uh, your portfolio as a whole is not just the assets that you own. It is your life, right? Like you mentioned saying you were over, uh, you could be over levered. Everyone assumes that means taking out a loan on the property. That's t- too much of an LTV. No, you could be at 50% LTV really low, but what if your life is over levered? You've got massive car payments. You've got a huge house payment that you can't afford. You've got a ton of debt you never paid off. You've got a lifestyle that other people are spending your money and you're not paying attention to it. You you can have prudent investments, but run your lifestyle in a way that isn't very disciplined. And you can easily lose the assets because of what was going on on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a... Speaking of the the loan thing right now, another thing that that probably a sticking point for a lot of people are bridge loans or people that are flipping right now based on ARVs from six months ago yep. that now that we're taking maybe a, I don't know what the correction is right now, but let's just say it's a 20 to 30% in the next six to 12 months, if that's what it is. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, but if that's what it is, then it's going to be a very tough to cash out and actually get your money back. Or if you're even just selling, like if you already had razor thin margins and you were only going to pull 10 to $30,000 of profit on a really light remodel, uh, you know, the, the correction of prices and then the, the increase in interest rates might cause buyers to not want to buy your flip. And thus you are in this hard money loan or bridge loan that you can't get out of. Yeah. That, that's actually happening to me right now in several properties. So I went on a buying spree right before rates went up and that they've just continued to go up. So I've got a couple properties, like pretty big rehabs on million dollar or several million dollar properties in the Bay area where I locked in a bridge loan for 12 months at something like, like nine, 10% interest at the time rates were four and a half, maybe, maybe five, but probably less. And rates have gone up so quickly that to refinance out of my bridge loan, which is like a form of a hard money loan, my 30-year fixed loan will be higher than what the hard money loan was. And 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 I can't sell it because the values have gone down. They haven't like crashed, but they've gone down less than where it was when I paid it because the rates have gone up so high, right? So it is these perfect storms that we're talking about. I had a lot of exit plans. Okay, buy the property, fix it up. The ARV should be here. I'm going to get more than 100% of my capital back out and I'm going to have this great asset. Well, now the cash flow is significantly less because rates were at five and then they jumped up to 10 and a half for this particular property I've got. And I can't exit it by selling when the market was just climbing, climbing, climbing because the the prices have gone down and they're also in the middle of being newly newly renovated. So I have to finish the renovation. And then you, of course, you get issues with the renovation, how long it takes. And then when the when you get permit issues that get popped up, like new stuff just keeps starting to add on and you're not able to collect any revenue for the property. You're not able to sell the property and you got to keep putting money into it until it's finished so that you can actually have something that could be rented out. And then when it is rented out, you're not going to be making nearly as much as you planned because rates have gone up so much higher and you're not going to get all your money back or as much money back because the value went down. This does happen in real estate. And the thing that you got to understand is it could not have been predicted. We didn't know when rates were going to go up like this. We didn't know when COVID was going to happen. Like you can't know what's going to happen. And the, and the flip side of it is when you let the fear of something going wrong, create analysis paralysis and you do nothing and you watch everyone around you making money. So you're in a position where there is no risk-free move. You're either going to lose out by not taking action or you're going to take action like I did and, and you're not going to get the result that you wanted. The only way that you mitigate that is that you don't look at what's happening in the immediate future. You look at what's happening in the long term. I did certain things well. I bought them in locations that are guaranteed to appreciate much more than everything else around them. Grade A locations, right? Um, I created additional units in these properties so my cash flow will be more than a comparable property would be worth. 
at some point rates will go down, I'll be able to refinance and I'll be able to get back to the numbers that I originally thought. It's really just time that I lost. I thought I was gonna be making a certain amount of money in six months. Maybe it's gonna be two and a half, three, four years, hopefully less, but it could be that long before I end up making that money. So I just lost time. But there's still like, what if I'd have bought these in terrible locations? Oh, there'd be nothing I could do right now. You'd just be screwed, right? So the principles of real estate, this is where they come from, is we are planning for the worst case scenario. Like, did I think rates were gonna go from five to 10 and a half for me? No, did I ever think I'd refinance into a 30-year fix that was more than the hard money loan that I used to start the rehab? No, did I think that the ARV would drop that significantly because the rates went up so high? Like on a $2 million house, if rates double, it hurts the value a whole lot more than a $200,000 house. No, I didn't think any of those things, right? But what you do with your money and how you construct your portfolio will allow you to survive those times. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, let me ask you this, just out of curiosity. When you go to refi those um, those homes, you were saying that like, you may not get the full, like, you may not get all your cash back. You'll just leave cash in the deal, like in the house. Yeah. So it's just energy that's staying in the house, right? If you will. It, yeah, I hate to, to use this uh, against you, but in the Burr Bible, you do talk about this a lot where people go and they rehab the house and for them, they want to like get all their money back, but they may only be able to get 80% of their money back and they can, they have to leave 20% in the deal. And it's like, Oh, 
too bad. Now, now you just have like locked net worth into a home or whatever, right? So I think at the end of the day, as long as you're looking at it from a long-term perspective, you, you aren't really losing. It's, it's really hard to lose in real estate on a 20 to 30 year cycle if you're actually holding on to your Almost impossible. Assets. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's what we're pointing out is what I lost was time. Okay. I thought I was going to be at a certain point in my timeline sooner. Right. And, and I didn't, but I gained a bunch of time on the stuff I bought in the last eight years because inflation was so wild and rent increases were so crazy that I got to where I should have been in 20 to 25 years in five. I have some properties that I bought in 2013 that the rents have more than doubled. Okay. So like a property, a fourplex is the one I use a lot. I bought it at rents were at 700. Now rents are at like 1750, 1850, depending on which unit, right? <clears throat> that shouldn't have happened for 20 or 30 years. That happened to me in like eight or nine years. Okay. So I gained a lot of time on those deals. And on these ones where the market turned around and we quick turned around on me quickly, I've lost some time. But yes, as long as you hold it for long enough, you'll be okay if you're following the right principles. It's but it's not fun. Like part of why we want to make this episode is so other people here, you're not the only ones going through this. When the market shifts that rapidly and that unexpectedly, it it like the the rug gets pulled out from underneath you and you don't know which way you're going to fall. For sure. Well, I guess on that note, I sort of wanted to talk about how liquid you can be with your portfolio to triage like any major changes in the economy, right? Are, do you have liquidity in your overall portfolio to be able to exit? Because I know that this is something that uh, probably a lot of people are, are going to have to face, right, in the next year. Like, like they, you, they could be in the middle of loans. They could be in the middle of refinances. They can have a bunch of homes. They may have lost their job and they're going to need money, right? So through triage, like what level of priority can you uh, basically assign different homes? Can you get rid of them? Like what's your flexibility right now with your overall portfolio? That's good. My problems are based off of acquiring too many properties too quickly. Like everything I'm doing is from the acquisition problems, the rehabs, the permitting issues. All the properties I already owned are fine. So that's just one thing I want to like, I don't want everyone hearing this to get scared and say, oh, David can't even make it in this market. Well, if you bought 20 short-term rentals in a four month period, like anybody's going to have some problems if everything doesn't go perfect. So I just bought a lot of properties and hit the perfect storm at the same time. That's a problem. As far as the properties that you already own, the question of like, well, how much liquidity do you want to, or equity do you want to keep in those properties? It depends on how much, how much energy you're keeping in your bank account. There's a balance there. Okay. So some people don't keep very much energy in the property itself. So they don't have a lot of equity, but that's okay because they keep a whole bunch of energy in their bank accounts through the form of cash liquidity. So, so they're fine. They don't have to ever sell a property. If you're somebody who's thinking, I don't want to have a lot of cash in the bank, I want to just put it all in the properties. Maybe you're the kind of person that likes to pay stuff off so you feel good knowing, oh, my loan to value is only at 30%. I'm safe. I can sell. Um, well, that's a person that can sell the property. But in order to access that energy, you have to sell. And I don't ever like to sell in a buyer's market. <laughs> I don't want to ever sell a property <laughs> unless it benefits me to sell it. The reason I don't like the strategy of, of keeping your energy in the house instead of in the bank is the only way to access it is either to refinance it or to sell it or to get a, a HELOC, some form of that. And if values are down, meaning I don't want to sell, rates are probably up meaning I don't want to refinance, right? Like there isn't really a great scenario there, which is why I'm frequently uh, confronting this belief that having your house paid down or paid off is not as safe as you think. You're, I prefer to keep that money in the bank where I can use it for other things or I can just make payments for longer. So some people will have 300 grand in the bank and say, David, I want to put 250 grand of this to pay down my $500,000 loan to a $250,000 loan. I'm like, okay, so if if you somehow lost the tenant and you couldn't make the payment, if wouldn't you rather have $250,000 in the bank to make payments for like nine years if you had to than dumping it all into the house and cutting yourself really thin when it comes to your ability to make your note payments? Yes. I, uh, dude, I struggle with this one a lot. I'll be honest. Like, I know that the 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 rule of thumb is like always leverage and like use other people's money and all that kind of stuff. I am very much for that. Like, Hey, let's leverage. Let's use that to scale, use the bank's money. Right. But I am starting to feel a little bit more towards at least having your, like if you could work towards having your primary paid off, that's always going to be a, like it's a savings account 
that you have in case if you lose everything, you don't have to pay a mortgage and you can stay in your house. I kind of don't hate that. You know what I mean? And if you really need to, eventually you can take a HELOC out. So I just think it's personal preference there. Um, like I don't, I wouldn't say do that with your investment properties, but with your primary, I think there's a little bit of comfort knowing like I'm sitting on a half a million dollars of equity that if I ever, if I ever really need to, I can take it. But you wouldn't feel that is, same comfort having a half a million dollars in the bank. Not really. No, it's actually pretty stressful. Okay. <laughs> is that because you'd be having, tempted to spend it? Not even that, dude. I just, I, I mean, I have cash in my accounts right now and I don't like it. You know, it's very strict because I just see it withering away, like the the value of it. And so and also I'm always like, I don't know, like it's like inconvenient to move it around and and to wire it to other bank and then the FDIC insurance, all that kind of stuff. I'm just like, yeah, it's nice to have it. It almost feels good. But then it also is a reminder of like all the employees that I have to pay to. I don't know. It's it, This isn't really real. This is like more. No, but that's how conundrum. human beings, this is our relationship with money and energy that we're talking about right now. It's very real. It doesn't make logical sense why you feel that way, but who cares? Because that's how you're going to make your decisions. You're going to see it. It's going to cause you to have some stress. And so I think this is part of the reason that you and I always want to feel like we're broke. Because the minute you feel like you're rich, you start making decisions like money isn't valuable. You start to lose respect for it. You just start spending it on things easily or, or letting people stay on the payroll that aren't doing a good job or paying more than you had to for the house because you have the money. When you always feel some form of broke or at least like disciplined or, or a little financially stressed in a small way, you value the money a lot more. You treat it with more respect because you don't have as much. I think that's probably what you're getting at. Definitely. Um, so with that, like how much money do you have in your bank account? No, I'm just kidding. All right. So I actually wanted to talk about the liquidity of liquidity of my portfolio. Theoretically, a lot of my portfolio is actually pretty liquid. I have so much equity because I I've purchased over the past five years and I've never really sold. So like I bought a house in Sevierville, uh, you know, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, year and a half, two years ago. I think I bought it for five hundred. Thing gets in the 800 and 850 range. A lot of equity there. I bought a house for 300 that's worth like 550, 600. I've got all these houses that have like six figures of equity. I almost every single one of the houses that I own have either six figures or multiple six figures of equity. And that's not because I'm a genius, it's just because I've purchased consistently. And so if I really needed to sell, I could sell right now in a buyer's market. Would I lose? money for my equity, maybe, but I still have the equity. So it doesn't matter. Like in my mind, I'm like, all right, my tiny house in Joshua tree, I built it for 165 K whether I sell it for like 300 or 350 doesn't really matter to me. Cause the amount of equity that I've built, it's like, obviously I want as much money as possible. But if I had to lose it 50 K because of the market, that's fine. Like the money is all play money, like monopoly money. Anyways, it's all, I've never realized it. And so it's like not even mine. That's how I kind of think about it. So I would say the majority of my portfolio is like that other than like some of the more recent purchases like our Scottsdale house. We bought that for 3.25 million. We have 20% equity in it from the down payment that we put on it. But if we try to sell it right now, well, I don't know, maybe it would do okay. But with the, I mean, the 6% in realtor fees would really cut into really a lot of that money for us. So overall, I feel pretty safe being able to sell my portfolio if I had to, but I don't really want to. And you don't ever want to be in a position where you do have to. You always want to be selling because it makes sense for you to sell. The The leverage is on your side if you're going to sell. And then selling is a complicated event in itself because you're probably going to have taxes on that money you made and you're going to want to do a 1031. So if you sell this house, do you have a place you can put the money or that you want to put the money? Is it going to create more stress in your life than it wouldn't if you, if you had just kept the property? But constructing your portfolio itself so that you're in a place where you never have to sell, I feel like is more than half the battle. The actual properties that you choose and the way that they work with each other is a pretty important component to making sure that you're never in a position that you have to sell when you don't want to. So what are some of the things that you've done, Rob, up to this point to maybe diversify what that portfolio looks like or buy different types of assets that will cover for you so you don't get in that position where, oh man, I you know business didn't go as well as I wanted the last couple of months, I have to sell something. Yeah, so I am a big fan in diversification, even just with, I'm obviously mostly, if not all short, well, yeah, short-term rentals or mid-term rentals right now. But I'm a big fan of diversification. Like I've got 
35 doors across the country, all right? I've got like a couple in California. I've got one in Arizona. I got a couple in Arizona, a couple in Tennessee, a couple in uh, Texas, one in Wisconsin, several in West Virginia, 20 in New York. So I'm all over the, the map and people are always like, why would you do that to yourself? Isn't it like hard to hire your Avengers? But for me, what I've found is I like to diversify across the country to combat seasonality. Um, and this is something you talk about quite a bit too with portfolio architecture, which I want to get into here in a second. But for me, I have sort of staggered so many of my short-term rentals at different seasonalities that I'm never really hurting on in one specific month. I'll give you like a, a good example. Like if you buy a beach house and you know you you close in May, you're gonna feel like a genius because you're gonna crush it from May to August. You're gonna be like, oh my God, I'm the smartest real estate investor that's ever lived. I'm gonna make half a million dollars on this house. And then September rolls around and you're like, oh, I am broke and I didn't save any of my money, right? Um, so to combat this, like you have to understand that beach markets, for example, are highly seasonal and they only crush it for three months out of the year. Meaning that if you were going to pick up another property, you probably don't want to do another beach property or else you're only ever going to make money for three months out of the year. So what you would want to do is find another property that maybe for nine months out of the year, staggering it with the other three months is actually making cash flow so that you always have money coming in. And so this is something that I actually specifically experienced with our, in a good way, or I've learned it really like in a good way, like our Scottsdale property, we bought a 6,000 square foot mansion uh, in the desert and closed in June when nobody goes to Scottsdale. And basically from June to November, I wouldn't say it was crickets, but like October was okay. November was a little slow. And it's like, oh man, like if anybody had, if anybody else that was not prepared for this stepped into a $17,500 mortgage payment, they would be hurting. They'd be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to go bankrupt. But because the rest of my 35 units basically crush it, like, you know, they, they all, they're all staggered throughout the year. It was no big deal. And now we're getting into December we're halfway booked. And then we've just, we just got like a $7,000 reservation yesterday for January for five days, a $7,000 reservation. And that's just one of the ones that came in. And now in January, we're charging like $1,500 to $2,200 a night. And now it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, great. Note to self, buy a luxury property in peak season so that you're not eating that mortgage payment for six months out of the year. However, you and I were able to weather that storm because we have relatively diversified portfolios. That's a very good example of portfolio architecture. You've got seasonality and short-term rentals. And it's important because of the mental game. And like you mentioned, a lot of people spend the money that comes from their rentals because they replace their W-2 income and you spend W-2 income. So why wouldn't you spend your passive income from real estate? The problem is with traditional rentals, they lined up very, very closely very well with the way that you manage your personal finances. So you get paid every month or every two weeks. And so you say, I make X amount of money a month. Then your bills are all set up on a monthly thing, right? I pay every month this many bills. So I can put a budget together based on a month. Well, if the tenant pays the same rent every single month, that that fits in really nicely because you're making a mortgage payment every single month. Well, short-term rentals screw this whole thing up because you can't look <laughs> at what you make in a month. Yeah. <laughs> we look at uh -huh. what they make in a year because not every month's the same. And so if you spend your money, oh, it's so easy to get caught off guard. Like you said, thinking that you're crushing it, you're doing amazing. Now you're dumping money into the property. Maybe you shouldn't be, or you're spending more money than you should be. You're justifying expensive trips to the property for stuff that don't really have to happen because the money's rolling in. And then you hit those winter months and ooh, it gets really bad. You're losing money and now you're, you're feeling really bad. Your emotions are tanking. Versus like <clears throat> you said, if you can get one that offsets the other, you never really have those huge spike uh, climbs up and the huge spikes down. Another way that I think that the Scottsdale mansion worked out in a sense of portfolio architecture was that we knew we were not going to make a lot of money when we first bought it. I think we planned to more or less try to break even the first 18 to 24 months. And part of that was because we had to dump so much money into the property to get it ready. And also we knew we weren't going to know what goes wrong. We had to figure out a new market. You can do that when your existing portfolio is cash flowing solid. 
You can't do that if this is the only property that you're that you're buying. This is the only one coming into your portfolio. You don't have a ton of money. You would lose the property. We also bought this house with a long-term horizon. We're like, we're buying this whole thing for less than what the land itself would cost if we just bought land, okay? But we're probably not gonna realize that value for five to 10 years down the road. This was an area that we know we really like Scottsdale long-term. The type of people moving there, the way the economy is set up, we think that market's gonna do incredibly well. But you don't have the luxury of cashing in 10 years down the line if you're barely making it right now. If you're like, I want to quit my W-2 job, this has been a terrible house to buy. So the oh reason we were God. even well, able to- at the, time, at the time that we bought it, at the, the month that we bought it, yeah. Yeah, but even if we had bought it during a time when people visit Scottsdale, we still, like the pool heater, we have to go replace and the water heater break in and the sport court that needs to be done, right? Like you can still step into this a couple hundred thousand dollars in the hole that you weren't planning on when you're buying a house this big in a new area. We were able to, because the stuff we had bought previous to this was performing so well that it bought us the ability to, to basically give ourselves a huge windfall in the future. This is like, you know, you put a hundred dollars in your coat pocket and then 10 years later you come back and you're going to find out that it's a hundred thousand dollars. It's a kind of a situation like that. But if you don't have money to live on, you can't put a hundred dollars in that coat pocket. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, when I say the the time that we bought it in, I meant more like we bought it in June versus January, you know? So now, now I'm starting to get to that point where I'm like, oh, hey, we're smart. Look at us. Look at this $7,000 uh, reservation or this $10,000 one. And now people are contacting us for events and all that kind of stuff. It's just a little bit of a, a slow trickle. But like you said, we sort of planned our, our portfolios accordingly. I would never tell anybody to go and buy a $3 million property unless they had the ability to actually endure the any any kind of road bumps, but also just the financial aspect of having a portfolio that can be, pick up the slack for you. You also would never tell anybody to just keep on buying $40,000 houses in the Midwest till you have 700 of them. That doesn't work either, right? So there is a progression of how real estate investing should change. You start in with like training wheels or a tricycle, then you get into training wheels, then you get into a bike and you kind of move through asset classes as you're learning. Keeping that in mind as you're building your portfolio will help you to weather the storms of life that come. It's true. And just let me just say, you did ruin real estate. Uh, like, like, uh, let me, how do I say this? You did ruin this for me in that when I wanted to go and buy like 10, $300,000 houses, you're like, why would you do that? That's a job. Go buy a $3 million house. And I was like, uh, and then we bought it and I'm like, oh yeah, I shouldn't buy these $300,000 houses anymore. And so now I don't. And so now it's like, I see these deals come across my desk all the time and they're good deals. But as I've learned from you, it's just not scalable to keep buying kind of these onesies. And so now I'm like very selective about the the swings that I take uh, kind of in a bigger scenario right now. I'm like trying to do 50 doors at a time or trying to do like luxury properties or trying to do things that are a lot more meaningful to my time. So I guess thank you on both ends of that. Thank you for ruining it for me and thank you for transforming me. You were a cat and you were hunting mice and you were getting all of your caloric needs met from those mice. But my friend, you have grown into a lion and now mice are unbefitting of a lion of your stature and you are now chasing gazelles as you should be. So David, when it comes to portfolio architecture, can you give us some of the, I don't know, some of the pillars or some of the criteria that goes into actually assembling your real estate portfolio? Yeah. So when you're looking at your portfolio as a whole, there's five things that I like to try to create some kind of balance because these are all ways that you build sustainable wealth that you'll actually enjoy. It's a form of building like a financial fortress that will stand no matter what gets thrown at it versus a 3D printed home that you could just throw up really quick and scale fast. But when the first storm hits, it's going to fall. The first is equity. You want to have a lot of energy in that portfolio. Like you said, Rob, if you come on hard times, you can pull it out. This is where the big upside is in your portfolio. You're going to build your biggest wealth through the equity that you create holding real estate long-term. So that's one of the first things that you want to think about. The next is cash flow. You need cash flow, not just to replace your income, but also to make sure you can keep the property for a long time because cash flows are how you make sure you can make that payment, which allows equity to even take place unless you stepped into equity right off the bat. The next is liquidity. 
that's not just in the portfolio, but in your life. You need to have reserves. That's a form of liquidity. Money that you can tap into. Can you borrow out of a retirement plan? Do you have HELOC set up on property? If you're in a pinch, if you get a good opportunity, do you have money that you can turn to right off the bat to go acquire a new property, fix something that went wrong, improve a property, whatever the case may be that's in the best health of your portfolio as a whole? The next would be ease of ownership. You're never going to build a big portfolio that does well if you hate owning it. If you've got 40 short-term rentals and you manage all of them yourself, you don't have ease of ownership. That's not something that you're going to enjoy. If you're buying properties in terrible neighborhoods, even if you're getting great deals, you end up hating owning it and you're not going to grow up big. You're not going to get that equity or that cash flow. So you can have a handful of problem children in your portfolio. Sometimes they're worth it, but it can't be something where the majority of your portfolio is something you don't like owning, and you do have to consider that when you're building. And the last would be scalability. Are you doing this in a way that you can keep scaling and you can keep going? Are you buying 10 $300,000 houses over and over and over? Well, that sounds great on a podcast when we say, oh, you could borrow money from investors, and we kind of construct the entire organizational chart of where every piece goes. And it sounds great to an engineer. They're like, that works. But then when you actually try to execute the play that you just drew up, you realize you don't have the skills to do it or it doesn't work in practice like it did in theory. So scalability is a super important part of your portfolio as a whole. And oftentimes that will mean thinning out some properties that uh, are too difficult to scale and replacing them with properties that are easier or moving from one asset class to another uh, as long as your other four requirements are being met. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, it sounds like really what we're looking for is a balance of a bunch of different things versus like really going into one aspect. And that that makes sense. You you asked me how I'm diversifying. And I said, well, hey, I diversify in location. But that's actually not just the only way I diversify. When I'm like building my portfolio, I'm actually diversifying the types of units that I'm listing on short-term rental platforms as well, right? So yeah, I've got them across Arizona, Texas, California, New York, but I also have really cool units that I just like to have fun with. And sometimes I'll buy a unit just because it's a cool looking property. So I've got tiny homes, I've got yurts, I've got Airstreams, I've got chalets, I've got cabins, I've got mid-century modern cabins, I've got condos, I've got a little bit of everything, and it's really because I like to appeal to all the different types of audiences out there. That way I know if something is trendy or if it's just not as hot, which like a tiny house, for example, people always love those. People don't want to stay at tiny houses in a year or two as much as they did this year. Well, then I have all these other types of properties to meet all of that. So for me, I'm always looking for for balance in my portfolio in the actual types of listings that I'm creating and the experiences that I'm serving up to people. That's it. You got to be thinking like that. And when everything's going great in the market, we don't think about diversification. We don't think about what if something goes wrong. We just think about what's the easiest, fastest, and funnest way to scale what we're doing. And that's how you can build yourself a treehouse. You could build those really quick. In a couple hours, you can have yourself a treehouse set up, but it's not how you build a fortress that's going to withstand the test of time. Well, kind of. I've been working on my treehouse village in Gatlinburg, Tennessee for about a year and a half now, but I just got the update on that today. And I actually think we're breaking ground in like a month. And it's going to be four dome tree houses that are in the in the air, as I guess pretty standard for a tree house. And then a, a tiny home, a tiny A-frame tree house too. And so that also goes into how I'm diversifying. I want to go more into unique stays. But, uh, but yeah, so to just so that I understand kind of your parameters for portfolio architecture, I just wanted to recap it for the audience. We've got equity, cash flow, liquidity, ease of ownership, and scalability. Did I miss any? And and with those five things, we want a good balance. That's it. And you want that. So each of those things should be making up for the weaknesses in the others. Okay. Awesome. Well, this has been really good. I um, regret to inform everybody that we riffed so much on the first half of this that we're going to give you another. I guess I don't regret. I am excited no, to two shows. you. Yeah. We're giving you a part two of this where we get into some much juicier maybe even profound questions like what are the actual challenges that that we're going through in our businesses some of the pitfalls if we were to actually lose it all tomorrow how would we rebuild our portfolio starting from scratch with zero dollars that will be on the next episode of bigger pockets and i'm really excited about it because i don't know if i have the answers yet but we are going to find out what they are soon 
It should be very fun. These are like, what would you do if you started over questions are always some of my favorites because it forces you to pull things out of yourself that you normally wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like every single time that, I, that you have your profound genius systems. And I'm like, uh-oh, I, I don't mind answers. Nothing like that. Uh, but that's good. You that's why I always can go second. Yeah, because I'm yeah. a jerk. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rob. I appreciate some of the insights that you shared here. And you also asked some really good questions. So thank you for that. I wouldn't be able to give good answers if I didn't get good questions. And to you listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode about all the things that can and do go wrong in real estate and what we do to mitigate that risk. In the next show, we're going to get into what we would do if we started over to help prepare for things going wrong. Because wise investors don't prepare for everything to go right. They make plans for what they're going to do if things go wrong, and they prepare accordingly. If you like this show, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review wherever you're listening to the actual podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever's your favorite. Just take a quick second and please give us that review so we can stay the top real estate podcast in the world. And if you've got some time, listen to another one of our episodes. This is David Green for Rob Has One T-Shirt Solo. signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.